The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Serving spiritual seekers around the world. Unity Online Radio. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here is your host, Victoria Moran. The science is clear. The results are unmistakable. You can dramatically reduce your risk of cancer, heart disease, and diabetes just by changing your diet. That's from the back cover of the revised and expanded edition of the China Study, the most comprehensive study of nutrition ever conducted. And because of the China Study and subsequent research and clinical work of plant-based doctors in the United States and around the world, we know this to be true. It's exciting. And I'm excited because I have as my guest today the authors of this groundbreaking book, T. Colin Campbell, Ph.D., and his son, Thomas M. Campbell, M.D. I'm Victoria Moran. I am the Main Street Vegan. You can find out more about me at MainStreetVegan.net and all the work that we do over there. But right now, it is my great pleasure and privilege to introduce to you these two very important gentlemen who are making this world so much healthier and, I would say, so much saner. They need no introduction, but I'll give you one anyway. For more than 40 years, Dr. T. Colin Campbell has been at the forefront of nutrition research. His legacy, The China Study, the most comprehensive study of health and nutrition ever conducted. He is a Jacob Gould Schurman Professor Emeritus of Nutritional Biochemistry at Cornell University. He has authored more than 300 research papers. And his son, one of his sons, he has another one who's going to be on our show with him in January. We'll talk a little bit about what uh, the other son is doing as well. But today's son is Thomas M. Campbell II, MD, co-founder and clinical director of the University of Rochester Program for Nutrition in Medicine. A board-certified family physician, Dr. Campbell is also medical director of the T. Colin Campbell Center for Nutrition Studies. A graduate of Cornell University, Thomas is also the author of The China Study Solution. Welcome, Drs. Campbell. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you're, what a pleasure always. You know, I look at my Google rankings. I think we all do that. We always want to know who's liking us and who's following and what's going on. And I have to say that whenever you are on the program, Google lights up because people really, really want to know what you have to share. 
So I have a whole list of questions, and I shared some of these with you. You know what those are. But before we get to those, I just want to ask each one of you what you are on fire about today. So let's start with you, um, Colin. I'll dispense with the formal doctors since we'd get confused. So Dr. Campbell, Ph.D., what's on your mind? Getting the public informed of this information I don't think uh, in the history of medicine, quite frankly, there's been a uh, some information that's as impressive as what this is, yet at the same time is um, misunderstood or ignored by so much of the population. Well, amen to that. And Tom, what you, what's exciting to you today? Well, I, I would just echo that. I think from my seat as a medical doctor and in my recent um Job activity, I think I've been struck by what the the canyon, uh, you know, I gave a presentation about the chasm between traditional medical practice and plant-based nutrition, and I've been struck recently about um, the fact that, uh, you know, it's very difficult to get reimbursed by uh, for a physician to provide lifestyle medicine, and um, even specifically if, if you have a diabetic patient, um, you know, as a lifestyle medicine physician, uh, there are concerns that you, you can't be uh, reimbursed for providing uh, lifestyle counseling. Or let's say you have an overweight patient or person struggling with weight. Um, there's concern you can't necessarily be reimbursed uh, for providing lifestyle uh, counseling and management um, unless you are doing something high risk like providing a pharmaceutical drug or doing some other extreme intervention. And the rationale is that it's not medically necessary. <laughs> um, and that, that term has been getting under my skin a little bit. It's not medically necessary to see a physician for lifestyle counseling. And um, it's absolutely nuts because we're, we're struggling. We're drowning in a sea of chronic disease that's related uh, either caused or exacerbated by lifestyle, but yet uh, doing lifestyle interventions is not deemed to be medically necessary. And I think until you solve that financial uh, scheme, you know, we're going to have a hard time really uh, dispersing this widely. Oh, my goodness. I, I, I'm sure you are absolutely right. It reminds me of many years ago when I had a, a medical doctor who was there attending a home birth of my daughter. And we had the most difficult time getting the reimbursement for this really very low-cost procedure because it was just out of the norm. The fact that this birth did not take place in a hospital was something that the insurance company wasn't used to. So I'm sure they're not used to um, prescribing broccoli. No, no, and and it's not. The thing is, is that it's not a five-minute uh, process, and you know, helping people change behavior is a very intensive, um, you know, time-demanding um, effort. You know, people, people, you can't do it with a three-minute conversation. It just doesn't work. Um, you know, for this very tiny minority of people, that might work. But for a lot of people, you really need to sort of hold their hand through the process and and give them a lot of support and various types of support to uh, help them change something so fundamental as to what they've been eating, uh, you know, for, for their whole life to, to something, a, a different nutritional plan. And I would think that you're up against competition from all these butter is back kind of headlines. So, uh, again, I think of my dad was pretty ahead of his time kind of physician back in the day. I remember that he had on the back of his business card something called mucus forming foods. <laughs> the top one was dairy. So even though I drank it all the time, I still knew, yeah, this is a mucus forming food. But when I remember he would say that whenever the Reader's Digest had an article about a disease, all of his patients that month thought they had that. And now, of course, we've got the Internet and so much information for people to be confused by. So what happens, Tom, when people come into your practice? What do they get from you that's different from what they would get from other physicians they've seen? Well, one is time. Um, you know, I, I see people at and, and 
at a minimum, it's uh, an hour uh, visit to start. At least that's my my recent practice. My practice is in the process of changing, but um, you know, and it's focused entirely on on lifestyle and the things that can help them change, uh, help the patient change their strengths, their barriers to change, and then education about what direction to go in. So it's not just sort of a feel good. Um, counseling session. It's also a educational nutritional session to describe a goal diet. And you know the way I put it is that this, if if you want maximal benefits with maximum speed, you're going to go all the way to the heart disease reversal diet, which is uh, you know whole food plant plant only plant exclusive diet um, with no added fat and no added pure fats and um, you know, but if you're not quite ready to go there, okay, fine. Realize that that's the goal for maximum benefit, and and you know you have to decide how you want to get there and how far you want to get there, and let me help you wherever you are on the process. And that's a fairly long conversation. So you know what's different is 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 the amount of time and focus on lifestyle and behavior change, um, and in in that singular kind of specialist focus on on that. Uh, of course, in the context of their medical problems and medications, and you know that's where the traditional medicine comes into medical training comes into play. Right. So, whenever you talk to people, what are their problems? I mean, what what, what kind of confusion do they have? Do they say to you, "But my family would think it was weird," or "But my other doctor doesn't say that"? What do you hear from people? Well, there's a whole range. There's there's just simple information. There's just simply, uh, you know, that that idea of giving them the gold diet. I do that because nobody's really been told a, a gold diet, so to speak, before. I mean, most people have heard about eating less, watching your portion sizes, um, you know, monitoring uh, carbohydrate intake, and so they don't necessarily know sort of a gold diet, though. They, you know, because because a lot of times people hear, you know, everything's okay in moderation. So. There's a lot of education just about what what the heck should I eat. I, I can't tell you how much confusion there is around carbohydrates in diabetics, for example. Um, you know, pretty universally, they are they for years or decades they've been avoiding things like sweet corn and 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 brown rice and potatoes. And um, you know, if they've if if they've been diligent, they've been <laughs> avoiding those things. And so um, a lot is just education about what to eat. And the fact that that you know no one's really told them about a plant-based diet, but then once they've come to that um, knowledge base, then there's all sorts of other barriers that are very powerful. And one is the, I think the most bar- powerful barrier is related to social uh, barriers, and that's the people who are important to you in your life, namely your spouse um, or significant other, and uh, uh, anybody else who's important in your life, uh, whether it's parents living with you or um, adult children living with you, uh, you know, people in your household who think that the idea is absolutely nuts, who um, are absolutely not going to change their diet, and they think that you're nuts. I mean, that's just a, such a huge barrier because that affects your environment. And so apart from social factors, there's also environmental factors. And by environment, I just mean, you know, what's around you day to day, moment to moment. So if you have a jar of candy in front of you all the time, do you have a bag of potato chips in the cupboard all the time? Um, is there soda open in the fridge, your favorite soda in the fridge all the time? I mean, these, these things, these environmental um, structures, these, you know, what's in your environment, as well as the social influences are absolutely um, m- sort of monumental and <laughs> how, you know, people think that we are sort of these free will, um, cognitive, logical creatures. And I, I've come to the conclusion that a lot of what we do, a, an awful lot of the decisions we make, m- many more than we'd like to think, are sort of determined by external factors outside of ourselves. So, you know, th- those things can be uh, you know, uh, points of focus when I when I counsel people. Oh, very good. And when when you use the word gold diet, are you saying G O A L or G O L D? Oh yeah, G O A L. Yeah, like okay. Like what's the goal here? Where's the, where do you uh, you know where, where do you get maximum benefit? Yeah. Okay, and I could also see it as the gold standard, but that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> right. let's you, right. you mentioned. Um, Carbohydrates. So I want to move to uh, Dr. Colin here because, in addition to the China study 
And in addition to the wonderful book, Whole, that um, Dr. Colin Campbell wrote with Howard uh, Jacobson, wonderful, wonderful book. You wrote, Dr. Colin, a little tiny book that I think is just one of the best gems out there called The Low-Carb Fraud. So could you just share a little bit about this whole carb thing and maybe put it to rest right now, today, forever? Wouldn't that be grand? (laughs) That's quite a task. Um, (laughs) Well, in that case, that little book uh, was intended to be a chapter in whole. And actually, the publisher at the time said that deserves its own identity, so he wanted it to come out and, and put it into a small book itself. And to be honest about it, I wasn't too excited about that idea, but there it is, and it's been out there. Uh, the idea, though, of uh, going to a so-called low-carb diet, uh, which is sad, it's not, it's not the way to go, because when we're on a low-carb diet, especially when they talk about 5, 10, 15, 20% of the total energy is carbohydrate, what they're really saying is the rest of the diet, you know, there's another 80, 90% or something like that, is supposed to be fat and protein, by definition. Of course, that means basically using animal food. So it was a subtle message, but subtle but very powerful message from the beginning that uh, it was it was an attempt to uh, basically defend the high-fat, high-protein, high-animal-based diet, essentially. Uh, and, and it turns out really to be a gross misrepresentation when they did that. because And they got away with it because initially when people go on that kind of diet, they do lose some weight if they have weight to lose. They might lose some weight, and that's pretty, pretty consistent. That's impressive and kind of holds them to their feet to the fire in a sense. Um, cholesterol might go down a little bit, not a whole lot in every case, but uh, I mean, those two would be benefits, if you will. But in the long run, uh, they don't stay on it for starters. Secondly, if you look at the data, you know, for long run uh, practices in terms of consuming a diet low in carbohydrate, meaning less less plants, very clearly they suffer higher risk for these diseases we, wor- we worry about in particular. So it was a misrepresentation, a gross misrepresentation. Uh, there's a number of books that have come out, you know, along that line, starting with Dr. Atkins' book in 1973, the first time. And uh, I, I, I fall back on this old idea that I've not mind, but, uh, you know, sometimes the biggest lies are the ones who, which have a kernel of truth in them. And this is a classic case. Because when people go on that kind of diet, as I say, they lose body weight oftentimes, Initially, they, you know, see their cholesterols in their blood drop a bit. Uh, and uh, and the other part of the truth, if you will, that's bared in here is that refined carbohydrates, if they just stuck to the idea of refined carbohydrates, which means, you know, table sugar, that kind of thing, uh, and or uh, white flour, refined flour, if they stuck to that and, you know, raised some, uh, some cautions about the use of that kind of carbohydrate, fair enough. But when they did it, they just kind of made a very generic kind of thing, you know, low carb, low carb, low carb, uh, which of course was an attack on the, on the, uh, uh, you know, the kind of diet we're talking about, the whole food plant based diet. It really was an attack on the consumption of whole plant based foods. Now, I think it was in part intentional, um, to be honest about it. Uh, and uh, it, it was a, it was a, an attempt to discredit. The movement that was occurring back in the 1970s and 80s, there was a movement at that time of which I was a part from, from uh, expert committees and the like that were beginning to recommend the consumption of more vegetables and fruits and grains. The National Academy of Science report, for example, that I was on that committee in the early 80s. And as that movement sort of took shape, uh, it upset uh, a number of people in the country, not the least of which were the industries that you know were promoting the consumption of high protein, high fat foods, namely the livestock industry. Uh, and uh, so, Dr. Askins came along and sort of captured that discontent and uh, put his book together. Didn't do well in the beginning because Nathan Pritikin kind of took him down in a sense, but it was regenerated again in the early 1990s. Uh, called the New Revolution or something like that, the New Atkins Diet. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. So, there, and there's been copycat uh, books along that same line. That, and I end up calling it. I think I don't pull back on that. It's a, it's a low carb fraud. Yeah, 
and things do cycle. It's so interesting to me. You know, I, I came to this diet through through veganism, animal rights, and when you talk about how there was a, a movement toward this kind of diet in the 70s and the 80s, there was also a, a move uh, in a whole other part of life away from wearing fur. It was such a big thing. I remember like 1969 all these famous people showed up in Vogue magazine saying, I will never wear fur again. And people followed that. But then the industry was working really hard behind the scenes to bring about a resurgence in the 90s and another resurgence they've been trying to do the past couple of years. So I guess we really have to be vigilant about everything that we find important. So, um, Dr. Campbell, one of the questions that was emailed to me earlier Someone said, as a proponent of whole foods, how do you look at RDAs and the daily values? And should lay people be paying attention to these? Well, I had some experience with that. I was on, again, another one of these so-called expert committees of the National Academy of Science on food labeling back in 1980, 1990 or so. We were asked to review that question, uh, because at that time, uh, manufacturers are putting all manner of things on these labels, uh, and it's really quite confusing. So we were asked to write something that might be, give some guidelines as to how it might be more direct and simple. We did. Uh, that was then taken up by the FDA, and they massaged it a bit, a little bit. And so the present system we now have actually came in part from that committee that I was on. And so we had to think a great, great deal about what should that label say. I was, uh, I guess you could say, a minimalist. There were about 10 of us on the committee, and I was arguing that the least, there is, the least amount of information would be better. Just focus on the main things, and my, my favorite was to look for whether or not it had cholesterol in it. Not that cholesterol per se all by itself is going to cause a lot of damage, but it was certainly indicative of the kind of foods that might be in that, in that product. Uh, of course, cholesterol only comes from animal-based foods, so that's number one. Number two um, is uh, to take a look at the total fat. That's the first thing I look at, the total fat in, intake in terms as a, of its percent of total calories. I think that's the best way to look at that because that tends to characterize the diet. And, uh, so, uh, and, and so keep it low. Just basically keep it low. Uh, and then the third thing along the same lines, look on the ingredient list. See what it contains, uh, especially if it contains added oils, because that's defeating, that's uh, you know, fat or, if you will, or oil that's uh, out of context of whole food. Uh, and uh, one might want to also look at some other things. Uh, you kind of hide the word casein in there oftentimes for, for whatever purpose they use it for, but they don't you know, necessarily alert people to that's really coming from animal-based foods as well, maybe jacking up the protein as well if it is high enough. And so there's main things I, I think to look at. Does it have cholesterol? Uh, you know, how much fat is in there? Uh, expressed as a percent of total calories. Go to the ingredient list, look there too, and see whether or not there's any added oils. I almost would stop there. I, I, you know, I, I can see that some other information is oftentimes interesting to people, especially salt. I should have said that. Salt is certainly of, of interest to, you know, some folks in particular. Uh, but the rest of it, um, not not terribly weighty in terms of making a decision whether to purchase it. I mean, I I think there's stuff that doesn't have labels on it, you know, along the outside of the grocery store, the fresh foods, vegetables and fruits and stuff like that. Uh, you don't need to look at the label to know that's good. You don't have to evaluate it. Absolutely. Well, thank you for that. And one other thing on that same kind of topic, this person had also gone on to say that to get the RDA for zinc was what she was referring to. You would have to eat three quarters of a cup of pumpkin seeds every day, which seems absurd. So are we supposed to worry about zinc or are we just supposed to eat whole plant foods and trust that the zinc will take care of itself? Yes, that's a good question. Um, uh, and by the way, uh, the whole discussion about RDAs, recommended dietary allowances, recommended daily allowances, the other term, um, that, those numbers have been around a long time. And they were an honest attempt, beginning back in the 1940s, actually, 
they were an honest attempt to try to define the quality of food in terms of the amount of nutrients they had. Uh, and uh, it made some sense, of course, at the time. But uh, with the passing of time, as those RDAs are fashioned or re- redesigned every five years, a group of scientists get together and sort of do that. Um, I've been involved with some of that, uh, mostly as a person coming in and sort of giving advice rather than being on the committee. But in any case, um, as they do that every five years, it becomes quite a political, um, I don't know, a wrestling match in a sense, because um, it's easy to change uh, the amount of nutrient being recommended and, and defend it, you know, using some some special kinds of experiments. Uh, it's easy to change the RDA uh, to favor a certain food. And I'll mention one in particular, calcium, um, the amount of calcium that's generally been regarded as good calcium that's associated with the lowest rates of osteoporosis, for example, the amount of calcium we need daily, more or less, is somewhere in the neighborhood of four to 500 milligrams per day. Well, they, that started being pushed upwards and upwards and upwards. Now it's up to 1,000 to 1,200. And I can tell you, the dairy industry was very, very interested in seeing that happen. Uh, vitamin C, or scorbic acid, we call it, uh, used to be uh, sort of pushed down. 10 milligrams, to be specific, 10 milligrams a day was enough to prevent scurvy, which is historically and classically associated with vitamin C deficiency. 10 milligrams was enough. Uh, then there were some other arguments. No, we need more than that, 40, 50, 60, something like that. Uh, and in reality, they, there was an attempt by the people who didn't like, uh, you know, high numbers for vitamin C. They were also opposed. They were like the Atkins people. They were opposed to keep setting that uh, recommendation very high because that would mean that we should be eating more plants. And so in a typical uh, plant-based diet, whole food plant-based diet, the vitamin C content, it ranges quite a bit, but it's in the neighborhood of 300 to 500 milligrams a day. And, and I would argue, just on the basis of that, uh, there's some makes some sense that we should be eating the foods that are pretty high in vitamin C, no question about it. But yet they were kept trying to press it down. And it became really quite a, a point of discussion um, in earlier years. And Zinc, um, sort of, sort of the same thing. I mean, we we put we we uh, attach too much meaning to those specific numbers. And I, I really don't care for them because um, they're sort of helpful for researchers. I think that they help a bit, maybe in interpreting data and that kind of thing. But uh, for the average consumer, I don't think they're all that important. To be honest about it, just eat a whole plant-based food and. You get a good variety of those foods, and all, everything is going to generally be well. And that is my next question, and that is about variety. Because I remember in nutrition classes in grade school being told, eat a wide variety of foods. But then they went on to explain what the variety was, and the variety was a lot of animal food and white bread and other things. So what do we do with variety? I, and I'm interested in, in both of you, what you know from the China study and elsewhere, that a lot of people around the world don't seem to have the kind of variety that we have, and yet they don't seem to have the degenerative diseases that we have. So where do we put the whole variety thing? Go ahead, Tom. Um, I, I, well, I think, you know, just to... Uh, piggyback onto the last question there and combine them a bit. I mean, the, like a three-quarters of a, uh, of a cup of pumpkin seeds, I believe you said. Um, you know, if you want to get that much of your zinc from that, I mean, that's sure <laughs> you could do that, but realize that, you know, beans have some zinc, uh, grains have some zinc. And so you don't need to eat. You, I mean, the reality is you don't need to eat, of course, three quarters of a cup of one food. Um, you know, if you're eating whole foods throughout the entire day. And so this idea of variety, I think, is a good idea, although um, it's, it, you know, as far as health outcomes, you know, you, you could probably strategically select half a dozen foods and live a very healthy life, <laughs> you know, for for forever, uh, just eating half a dozen foods. So it, it's not necessarily... Um, a requirement, I think, for health. But I think, uh, you know, one of the things that we see over and over and over is that, you know, certain foods are rich in certain things. Um, 
you know, uh, uh, for example, kale is a better source of calcium than spinach. Um, and, you know, if you, it, tomatoes have long been known for their lycopene content, which is a certain phytochemical. Um, but, you know, there, there are other uh, colored vegetables that have more of other phytochemicals. So the idea is you just get a, uh, you kind of get a mixture of everything with a nice variety. But I would, you know, I, I don't think people need to be... Um, really strategic uh, about it or put a lot of energy or effort into it, uh, unless I suppose you wanted to pick out three or four foods and never eat anything else for the rest of your life, in which case you better be very strategic <laughs> to make sure you're getting everything. But, um, you know, it, it's kind of, variety is, is easier in our, in our modern culture and, you know, you get, you get more uh, variety of nutrients as well. So I, I think it's something to strive for. Um, you know, the idea is uh, we hear about from the American uh, Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, for example, you hear a well-planned vegetarian and vegan diet can be healthy. So well-planned. So what does that mean? That means, you know, including the things that sort of cover your bases from a nutrient point of view. Um, and it doesn't take an uh, engineering degree to do that. But, um, but you know, you, you, you can run into trouble if you're eating uh, only pasta every day or, you know, um, that type of thing. I get it. So basically yeah. good sense. Oh, my gosh, where did that come from? Yeah. Did you have something, yeah, Colin? I had a com- Absolutely. Yeah, I had a comment on, on what Tom said. I totally agree with everything you just said. So when I think about the uh, concept of variety at times, I'm thinking about, I'd like to think of it in the context of the plant itself. You know, the plants, of course, they have roots and they've got stems, they've got leaves and, and some uh, fruiting bodies, if you will, uh, flowers and seeds, etc. cetera. Uh, and each of those parts of the plant uh, have a somewhat different nutrient composition. Uh, roots, for example, obviously, is a good source of uh, generous amounts of carbohydrate. It's the complex carbohydrates that we should be consuming, potatoes and yams and even beets and things like that. Uh, the stems are, are healthy uh, oftentimes and have some other kinds of nutrients too, and so too, so too do the leaves. The leaves and the fruiting bodies, they, they really are pretty rich in the carotenoids and other um, chemicals like that, the antioxidants. Uh, and dietary fiber is found in much of the plant. And so uh, variety to me means eat the whole plant, <laughs> essentially. Mm. Um, and that's one, one way to just kind of look at it. Uh, the other thing too is having variety in your diet a bit is makes it a little more uh, pleasant, I think, uh, in eating that way. But at the same time, to go back to your question about people in some countries that you have little variety, uh, one of the reasons they have little variety is generally talking about just rice and beans, maybe or something like that. In the Philippines, I you know it's even more limited. Essentially, it's kind of rice gruel, maybe with uh, some coffee beans thrown into it. It was really pretty bad, but they, they were at the other extreme of uh, just having, because of uh, their their means of being able to even purchase food or get food, that can run into some dangerous situations, especially for children when they're so limited, you know, in the kind of foods that they might be consuming. And uh, so... Uh, I mean, there are yeah, deficiencies all in, that, in that situation. There, there you know, vitamin A yeah, that's and right. deficiency and... Um, rickets, you know, th- those things do exist. So mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> um, you don't necessarily need to spend any brain power on, on the variety, but um, it covers your bases, so to speak. Perfect. Well, you are covering our nutritional bases very, very well. We are going to stop right now for a break. And when we come back, we are going to find out more about controversies. Mm-hmm. Stay with us. you like to share the programs that inspire you most with audiences around the world that's easier than ever with mobile giving just text unity radio to 72727 and help us continue offering spiritual programs that change lives
what if you could experience vibrant health, help heal the planet, and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. At Metaphysical Romp 2, we demystify metaphysics to help you live life at a deeper level. One of our key principles is the recognition that you always have the power to choose how you respond to any situation. Instead of asking, why did this happen to me? A better practice, which aligns with the metaphysical principles we share, is to ask yourself the question, how can I use this for good? We promise you'll experience a transformation in thinking that will reap huge dividends as you master the art of living metaphysically. For new perspective and spiritual insight, listen to Metaphysical Romp 2 with co-hosts Rev. Paul Hasselbeck, Rev. Bill Holton, and Rev. Cher Holton. Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Central Time, here on Unity Online Radio. listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the program. Just a couple of announcements. Uh, those of you who have been listening know that I am going to be at VegFest UK in London the weekend of October uh, 21 and 22. I'm speaking both days. I do hope you can come by. That is an amazing festival at the Olympia if you happen to be over in my very favorite country other than my own. <laughs> Love it there. And also, I'm going to be speaking in London on the evening of Tuesday, October 24th, 6 p.m. at Watkins Books. Watkins Books in Cecil Court near Trafalgar Square. I have some history there. I wandered in when I was 18 years old, living in London, trying to figure out life. And here was this amazing bookstore, and it had a section called ecology, which was a word I'd never seen before. And it had books on vegetarianism and meditation. Suffice it to say, it opened up my life. And to go back there almost 50 years later as an author is just the coolest thing ever. So please, uh, if you're in London, hope to see you at Watkins Books on Tuesday evening, October 24th. But there is no time like the present. And right now, we are talking with Drs. T. Colin Campbell and Thomas M. Campbell II. The big question, Dr. Colin, why is it so confusing? I mean, this is yeah, supposed to be a funny. science. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, the matter of confusion really concerns, in my view, uh, something I've, a view that I've acquired later in my career, but in any case, it, it really has to do with the fact that we too often are pay, pay too much attention to, to the details of a much larger and much more important message. And there's a reason I really like the word whole when we're describing this kind of diet. It has meaning for me because we're talking about the whole food and all the nutrients in those foods. Uh, many of which, I mean, the, the number of chemicals in food are almost infinite, quite frankly. Many of them, we call them nutrients or nutrient-like. And so what turns out to be the case when, when one examines their effect in our body, uh, they work together in a marvelous, I call it a biological symphony. They, they work together really, really well. It's a, it's a fact of nature. 
And that's where we get the really uh, important effects of food on our health, in either in preventing disease or promoting health, as a matter of fact. So the concept of whole is, is a very important concept. Now, having said that, that's, in my mind, the ideal. But having said that, most of us, whether we're in, you know, buying and selling food or whether we're just shoppers and we're looking at labels or, or whether we're scientists or whether we're medical practitioners, we tend to want to focus on the details, the tiny little details. And so often those details are taken way out of context. And we make big stories about details. And so uh, when we think that way and we're just looking at the details, then almost everybody depending on their persuasion and what their interests are. Everybody's got their favorite detail. And when we do it that way, the detail is not describing the whole. And so we get in these enormous arguments, much, much too common, uh, about you know whether it should be this or that or how much of this, how much of that. Uh, and, and those details are oftentimes derived from experimentation. I'm talking about my own community right now, research. It's derived from experiments that actually work on individual things. And we do that in order to better understand their chemistry, their physiology, and so forth and so on, which is fair enough. But uh, unfortunately, that kind of information gets out there, and we end up just making mountains out of molehills, <laughs> essentially, when we're talking about our favorite, uh, favorite detailed bit of information. Oh, That's that where the sense. source of confusion comes from. It's really it is. That makes so much sense. Now, you said that you like the word whole, and I believe that you are the creator of the term whole food plant-based. And I am wondering, well, two questions really. What is your definition of whole food plant-based? And also, is there a way to make it any clearer? I was telling you during the break, I, I went to dinner in recent memory with a, a lovely couple who were thrilled with being plant-based. Oh, we're plant-based, and, and it's so great, and we feel so good, and it's just fabulous to be plant-based. And then the waiter came, and they ordered, respectively, chicken and lamb. And I really think my jaw hit the floor. And then they explained, well, we're, we're plant-based. We're not plant-exclusive. And I picked up my jaw and continued, but... I, I just don't know what to do with that. Help me out. That question, that, yeah, I saw that uh, when you sent it to us. I, I hadn't heard it expressed quite the way you did. Uh, it's a very important question. Uh, you have a really good point. Uh, I've talked about plant-based, of course, and and uh, I've kind of avoided uh, conceptually, at least, talking about something in, in exclusive terms. I don't particularly care for that in some ways, but that's the way I live. Uh, and uh, that, I'd like to come back to what Tom said before. Call him, call him talking about the gold diet. That's the first time, Tom, I've heard you say that. <laughs> but in any case, uh, I like the concept of goals. In other words, you tell someone, Here, here's, here's the science that supports this idea that, you know, we should uh, consume entirely, uh, you know, all plant-based foods, exclusively, if you will, without making it too overt about that idea. But that's the goal. And then... Give the information to the individual and what they choose to do with that is their choice, obviously. I don't like to proselytize, quite frankly. Uh, so you set this as the goal and then depend it on the basis of your knowledge and on the basis of the science. And then honor the step that everybody takes toward that goal. And the, the other side of it for the consumer, they can say, okay, I know what the goal is. I can't quite do it. It's their choice, obviously. And But if they get 80% of the way or 90% of the way, they can still know they're not quite there. But they can feel good about what they're doing. They can think, feel good about their progress, but they know there's still more. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just like that. It's sort of a, it's an expression of journey. You know, we're on a journey to make things as, as best we can. And the concept of, of the goal is a good way to think about it. It is, and I love that you said honor the step, because that's honoring the person. And I know that when you take a step and somebody says, good for you, you're much more likely to take the next one than if somebody just says, you know, you're you're hopeless. So, um, Tom, I wanted to ask you something, because we hear a lot about it, particularly in in the the vegan world, the plant-based world. We hear some talk that there is over-promising. That sometimes there there is 
the idea put out there that we have this panacea that if you eat this way, you'll you'll never get sick. Nobody is really saying you'll never die, but it's kind of like, well, you won't die until you're like so ancient, you'll be in the Guinness Book of World Records. And that that is not really the, the message that, that we want to get out there. Can you address that? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that um, if you overpromise, you sort of... Uh, um, I guess you you do harm to the overall message. I, I feel like um, you know people have to find you credible, and uh, if you get the sense that you know the nutrition is going to cure everything for everybody all the time, that's just outlandish uh, and not true. And um, you know I, I I don't think that serves anybody very well. But on the other hand, you know we we've got a population that is uniformly essentially, uh, uniformly consuming uh, substance that I don't even consider to be food, (laughs) Um, uniformly consuming horrible diets, uh, uniformly suffering uh, horrible health, and you've got to motivate them uh, when you get a chance, if they're open, uh, to, to turn their life around by changing something that's very personal and um, you know, ingrained in their habits, their day-to-day habits, that's changing their food. And, you know, you can't say, you can't always uh, put every qualification of every scientific study when you communicate with people, with the lay people especially. Um, and so some people kind of get carried away with this idea that, you know, if you say that it's good for diabetes, it must be, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a balance between motivating people and, um, you know, putting all the scientific qualifications that, that go with standard science. And some people mess up that balance uh, by over-promising, I think. But, um, you know, the, the bigger problem is we need to motivate the entire population. So, you know, is, is there harm? I, I can understand there. I can understand that, that foul, so to speak, of over-promising. I, you know, I, speaking for myself and my own practice, there's plenty of things that, that don't seem to be helped by food. You know, there's, there's individuals that... Um, that that have uh, issues that for some individuals uh, changing their nutri- nutrition helps, and I've had people where changing their nutrition hasn't helped it. And um, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I, I, I bet if everybody <clears throat> if everybody ate a, a very perfect whole food plant based diet, there still would be cancer. Uh, you know, some small, some super tiny uh, minority of people uh, might still get. Uh, diabetes might still have high blood pressure. Uh, I don't think that you erase all of those things 100% of the time, but the, the you know the, that argument is a bit goofy. It's a bit academic, right? I mean, if we could reduce things by 80, 90%, <laughs> you know that that changes our world uh, dramatically in every way. Um, and so we're motivating people to try to to try to change their life and change their day to day habit. Um, and we, we have to do it, you know, with appropriate scientific caution. Uh, but we still have to, we still, I, I think, our obligation to motivate people to try to live healthier lifestyles. Oh, that is so beautifully put. And I think that also leads to the hypothetical question we sometimes hear, but if everybody ate this way, it would derail the medical system and the whole economy. So even though that's really hypothetical, what should we be doing to prepare for a world that is sane and healthy coming one of these days? <laughs> Super optimistic yeah. question, Victoria. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, a, that's, a, that's a question relative to um, policy, to be honest about it, and having been on a number of policy com- uh, communities where we just think exactly about that. Uh, unfortunately, to start with, unfortunately, these committees we're not certain with the right information. It's oftentimes too much of a defense of the status quo. But with that caveat set aside, um, I looking at the question in a larger context like that, you know, what do we do for the world going forward? Now, I like that uh, little concept that most people agree to, uh, and namely is that knowledge is power. And I think almost everyone agrees with that concept. Power is money. Power is measured in terms of money. And so institutions or individuals who acquire power usually acquire money. And so that now they're involved in, in controlling their space, doing their thing. They have power. They have money. And so they have money. Then what are they going to do with the money other than investing in their, what they're doing? 
one of the things they do with their money is basically to control knowledge. So it's a triangle. We have knowledge is power, power is money, money comes back, is then used to control knowledge. And that's exactly what happens in the political world or in the policy world. And so um, with that said, and so that, that perspective, um, I think the biggest thing that we can do in a larger context, in societal context, is to uh, you, uh, sort of spread the knowledge. It's all about knowledge. And unfortunately, there's too many official bodies and institutions and people who are trying to control the knowledge, and they're the ones that have the power. So it's really, it really comes down to the whole question concerning how do we, how do we get the knowledge out there in a, in a credible way, uh, and you know, in an honorable way. Maybe, obviously, not overstating the case, but just make sure that we, the knowledge gets out there. And unfortunately, our yeah, government it, is not doing that now. And I'm not sure that you know, if if we all were eating perfectly, it would it would collapse the economy or or be a detriment economically, financially, in any, in any sense. I think that it just shifts where the where the uh, you know where the profits go. Right now, businesses are supremely hampered by healthcare costs, um, and so all those costs go to profits for pharmaceutical companies or you know the healthcare industry, various aspects of the healthcare industry. Take those profits away; they don't disappear. They go back to the employers, right? I mean, they they those costs go back to the bottom line. Uh, employers, for example, um, you know, we could have a whole industry of of truly sustainable uh, farming. Uh, for example, you know, if you sort of pardon my departure from nutrition here, I mean, it, it's sort of like this whole energy debate, right? Going from uh, old fossil fuels to renewable energy and this impression or feeling that somehow if we go to renewable energy, we're, we're collapsing the economy. There's this sort of gut reaction, which of course is not true. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a different economy. It's a, it's a different um, it's a, it's different people making the profits, perhaps, <laughs> uh, which is which is the real issue, of course. But um, you know, it's not. If, if anything, if everyone were healthier, I feel with our, our society would be richer uh, financially. You know, financially, we we would uh, as a whole be richer. But of course, the status quo sectors that are currently profiting off of our sickness uh, and the way we treat it. Uh, would be upended, but you know all of that damage to those sectors would be, uh, in, in in turn, a, a profit for other sectors, and, and for happiness and well-being. So I'm going to envision yeah. that kind of world, and we'll just give the pharmaceutical industry and those people time to adjust. <laughs> we know it's not happening overnight, but my goodness, if uh, the three of us had our way, it would be. Now, you talked, Colin, about power and where it's invested. And, and one place I think it's also invested is when we get together as communities. And your other son, Nelson Campbell, is doing a lot with that, with this wonderful organization, Plant Pure Communities, uh, plantpurecommunities.org. Recommend that everybody check that out. They're going to be having a wonderful event in New York City in uh, November 30th. So if you're in this part of the world and want to come and uh, party with the Plant Pure people, that's going to be a very cool thing. And uh, also when we come back from, from break on Unity Online Radio for the first week in November, we're probably going to have a whole new system and everything's going to sound fabulous and be wonderful um our first show in january january 10th will be dr t colin campbell will return with nelson campbell of plant pure communities so finally in just our last minute thanks so much to both of you and i just want dr colin to take you maybe out of your scientific comfort zone for one minute and tell you that you are such an inspiration to me to never even Think about the word retirement. Can you just give a few seconds to what people who are moving along in life but who have passions and drive need to be doing with that? Well, I've often thought part of that word retirement, you know, there's an inner part of that word tire. I don't particularly <laughs> like to retire and be tired. So why would I want to retire? It doesn't make a lot of sense, I think. Uh, so, but anyway, play on words, I guess. Um, I, 
Uh, I don't know. I, 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 I just, I'm not the kind of person who wants to sit around and, you know, do nothing. <laughs> it's just not being alive. That's it. Well, thank goodness for that. I, I'm just, um, you are, you're just such a role model to me and I know to so many other people on so many levels. So everybody, um, if you haven't read the China study or if you haven't read the revised and expanded China study, do that. Check out the T. Colin Campbell Foundation for Nutrition Studies. Did I say that right? Uh, Hello? Yeah, Center for Nutrition okay. Studies. Yeah, the Center for Nutrition Studies, nutritionstudies.org. Nutritionstudies.org. You can take an online course in plant-based nutrition. I have taken it. It is fabulous. Check that out. And just really quickly, uh, Tom, can you tell us what you're doing up there in in, uh, Buffalo? Um, Rochester, uh, just down the road. Rochester, sorry. Yeah, Rochester. So we're actually, uh, it's very exciting. We are, I'm the medical director for our new center at one of our hospitals, a weight loss and management center um, that will offer a range of options for people to lose weight, but including a strict whole food plant-based option and arm for for group um, education. That's clinically, and then on the research side, uh, we've secured some funding to pursue research for um, diet and cancer research and and clinical trials. So that, that will be getting underway soon. Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And we've put URLs for all this good stuff on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. Thank you both, Dr. Campbells. Thanks to Unity Online Radio, our engineer, Jeff Comfort. And thanks to you, our listeners. God bless you. Eat your whole veggies. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. Tucked away in the Unity Library archives in Unity Village, Missouri, you can find a secret treasure. They are the scripts from Unity co-founder Charles Fillmore's early days on broadcast radio. The teachings of Unity's founders, almost a 100 years old. Now, for the first time in history, you can hear them through the power of the Internet. Join Bob Brock every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, for Unity Classic Radio. Words from our past. Discover the wisdom of Charles Fillmore's talks and of other Unity Radio speakers read on the air again. Call in your comments and questions as Bob and his special guests revisit Unity Radio talks of the past, along with historical background from the early days of the Unity movement. That's Unity Classic Radio. Words from our past. Every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, right here on Unity FM. The voice of an awakening world. Life is a balancing act with hectic schedules and ceaseless demands on our time and attention. We've learned to prioritize. So often, though, I neglect to make time for what is most important. In our drive to get things done, there is an underlying desire, a need we all share, the need for peace. It is a gift that waits within me, ready to be enjoyed if I will simply allow myself the opportunity to connect. Inner peace lessens the everyday stresses of life and reminds me that how I am, the mental and spiritual point from which I view myself, is as important as what I do. I can make peace a priority. Peace can begin with me. To find a Unity Church near you, please visit our website at www.unity.org.
Just like life, grief is a journey, not a destination. Whether it is loss of life, relationship, security, or simply the process of change, have you given yourself permission to begin your journey of grief? Have you yielded to the gift of grace? Join Reverend Chaz Wesley every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central on a virtual navigation from grief to grace and explore new horizons of empowerment, significance, and support only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to ignite your best life and illuminate the world? I'm Stephanie James. I'm a motivational speaker, transformation coach, and psychotherapist. And what lights me up is helping people just like you create the greatest versions of themselves. On my podcast, Igniting the Spark, I will help you ignite your joy and reach new heights in your personal and professional life. Join me for some incredible conversations with authors, spiritual teachers, and other influential thought leaders to help guide you on your way. If you are ready to stop playing small, join me for Igniting the Spark on the mindbodyspirit.fm network or wherever you get your podcasts and ignite your best life. 